Hello and welcome to the 11th series of the DNV Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck, and I'm excited to be back in the interviewer's seat after DNV's two documentary podcasts were published earlier this year. In this series, we'll be exploring what needs to happen on a global scale from a political, financial, and technological perspective to achieve 1.5 degrees. COP26 is a pivotal moment in the race to decarbonization. But how will political commitments be turned into action and how can industry support climate change ambitions and make them a reality? In this episode, published ahead of COP26, we highlight the challenges that world leaders will need to tackle as they come together in Glasgow, UK for this crucial summit. To discuss this, I'm joined by three of my highly knowledgeable and experienced colleagues here at DNB. Svera Alvik, Program Director for the Energy Transition Research Program and author of the new DNV report, Pathway to Net Zero. Elkarim Govinji, Head of Public Affairs, and Harry Vamadevan, Senior Vice President and Regional Director of DNV Energy Systems, UK and Ireland. With the help of our guests today, we'll highlight what needs to happen to ensure that when the dust settles after COP26, actionable roadmaps for deep decarbonization are put in place across the world. We hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to all of you, Svera, Harry and Al-Karim, and many thanks for taking the time to joining me today. Svera, I would like to begin with you. You are the author of a new DNV report, The Pathway to Net Zero Emissions. Could you give us an overview of the key points that are made in that report? Yes. Thank you, Matthias. First, this Net Zero Pathway report is, is something new from the NV side. We have for five years now been publishing an energy transition outlook, pointing at what we see as the most likely future with the expected economic, political and technology developments. And that future is leading us towards what we call a 2.3 degree future in 2100, meaning it's not the future we want. No, for the first time, we want to contrast this by doing a report and a model of how do we achieve the future we do want? How do we achieve a one and a half degree future? And we do that by pointing to a net zero emission in 2050 future and looking into what each region and each sector needs to do to make their share of the contributions towards this one and a half degree future. And the main findings in our pathway to net zero is that if the world is to reach net zero and hence secure this one and a half degree future, then the leading regions and sectors have to go much more than zero and much faster than 2050. Because the starting points of the world's region, they are very different and they both have varying energy intensities. Uh, they also have very various capabilities for how they can decarbonize. So the OECD regions needs to move much faster. As an example, both North America and Europe, they need to go to net zero already in 2043 and then go negative after that. And China needs to reduce emissions by 98% by mid-century while other developing regions are yet not at a stage where they can decarbonize at mid-century. 
The second main finding is that renewable electricity, hydrogen, and bioenergy, they are the essential, and they will be responsible for 80% of this emission cut that we need. But 80% is not enough. We need to cut all emissions. And then we need also carbon capture and storage to take those remaining 20%. So that is both carbon capture and storage and carbon removal technologies, such as direct air capture and forestation. And the third one, in order to achieve this, we need a massive early action because we already lost three years since the IPCC one and a half degree report in 2018. And if we are to have any chance of reaching one and a half degree, we now need to speed up even more across sectors and across regions. So Sverre, you just mentioned there the need for major economies to go further and faster to reach the net zero pathway. With COP26 about to take place, what needs to be achieved and how realistic is it that it will be achieved? Yeah, first, COP26 needs to be much more than, than, than nice speeches and, and uh, big intentions. Uh, it needs to get to the hard facts and especially the hard actions. Again, is that the, these actions need to be early. They need to start in 2022. And we can do that by starting with the promises that we already have given and keep those. For example, this $100 billion a year on climate finance fund. We need to get those money in place by the developed nations. And we need to get the NDCs, the, the uh, National Determined Contributors, the pledges. They need to be updated and they need to be adhered to. And I think those two things in itself, they are relatively realistic. That is something we can have a good hope of achieving in Glasgow. However, the actions to scale this to the level prescribed in the net zero pathway is much more difficult and, and maybe not so realistic that we, we suddenly should be our way on our way to a one and a half degree future. But we could hope that we take steps in the right direction. Al-Karim, we've just heard Svere talking about the pathway to net zero and what he believes needs to happen. In your view, what are the key challenges faced from a policy and funding perspective? Yeah, indeed. And in some cases, these two do intertwine. Uh, so, for example, if you look at government funding of clean technologies through innovation funding for hydrogen or historically in many markets through incentives to finance and support the deployment of solar and wind really facilitated some of these changes. So finance and policy there comes together in a sense. But taken separately, if you think about policy challenges, As Farah just mentioned, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change just reported recently in July that the 119 or so countries who are parties to the Paris Agreement out of the 190 altogether uh, and their five-year nationally determined contributions or NDCs were inadequate to limit a global temperature rise by 2100 to two degrees, let alone a 1.5 degree world. So policies need to be much more aggressive to make us reach the targets that are required. One of the ways uh, policy can do that is phasing out subsidies for fossil fuels. Now, the challenge is that's not straightforward in every single country. And we've heard that different countries are at different stages of this transition. So some markets are hugely reliant on coal for power and heating. 
And so the transition for them and for policymakers in those countries is much more challenging. For example, some of the Eastern European countries, India, China, as examples. And in these countries, or some of those countries in particular, need to be supported financially to enable that transition to happen. And so as an example, the Green Deal that the EU has recently or has, has, has presented and the Fit for 55 legislative package that came into being in, in July established a modernization fund, which was aimed at doing just that to support those countries make that transition. On the financial side, uh, what I would say is capital is available to make the 1.5 degree world happen by 2050 uh, and beyond. Uh, if we look at the percentage of GDP that is spent on energy, it's around 3.2% uh, at present. And if you extend that, and what we see in our energy transition outlook to 2050, we anticipate that percentage to be closer to 1.6% of GDP. And so if the current fraction that we have of 3% is maintained, then there's more than sufficient funding uh, there to enable that transition to happen. So I think financially that money is there. But the one challenge we do have is that there are not enough projects for capital to chase. Uh, so there are not enough renewable projects and, and the speed of, of new deployments are not fast enough. And so if they don't find those projects, then the capital will flow to other projects. So speed is really important here. Harry, on that point, I'd like to go a bit deeper here with you. So we have just heard that policy and finance are vital components in accelerating the energy transition, but we want to explore where technology comes in. And thinking specifically about renewables and the supporting infrastructure needed, we know that there is no shortage of funding. It is apparently, as we also just heard from Al-Karim, the availability of projects that is slowing things down. So in your view, what needs to happen to unlock the potential to rapidly increase adoption of renewables? Thanks, Matthias. Um, the success of achieving a low-carbon energy system is very dependent on the build-out of electricity generated from renewable sources such as solar and wind. For solar, the challenges are around decreasing the unit cost of panels and improving their energy efficiency to increase the uptake. But for wind, it is quite a different picture. Most future wind projects will be offshore. And there are three clear challenges, policy, supply chain, and power grid capacity. On policy, it takes five to 10 years to plan, permit, finance, and build an offshore wind farm. This is simply too long. So Al-Kareem, you need to persuade governments to speed this up. The second challenge is around supply chains. With big ambitious plans for offshore wind from the US, UK, Europe and Asia, we will very soon have a lot of projects all around the world competing for the same resources. It is absolutely vital that we invest in local supply chains, local port infrastructure, local offshore vessels, and in particular, local talent. Otherwise, we're not going to avoid a supply chain crunch in the future. And the third challenge is how are we going to move all this additional electricity around? We need to upgrade and increase the capacity of the power grids. DMV's ETO report highlights we need a doubling of grid capacity by 2050. So, Matthias, some very clear challenges to building out renewables. 
Thanks, Harry. And we have heard from all of you now individually about what's on the top to-do lists of global governments ahead of COP26. I'm now really interested to get each of your views on what will actually be achieved in Glasgow. So what I want to ask everyone is this. If political agreement could be reached on just one thing at COP26, what would you hope it would be? Let's start with Svera and then Al-Karim and then Harry. Thank you. Yeah, I would really hope that you can uh, reach political agreement on the distribution of this climate finance. So who is to do what? And, and who is to contribute with how much into this 100 billion a year? But even more important than that, I think still is, we need to move all these ambitions and, and actions forward. We, we need to, to get the, the pledges and the view from a 2030, 2050 perspective down to a 2022 and 2025 perspective. So, so instead of talking about uh, peak emissions by 2030, net zero by 2050, we need to have strong commitments on what is happening in 2022 and where are we to be in 2025. Because this is what has been lacking now over the last yeah, many, many years, to, to have early commitments and early actions across regions, across countries, across sectors. So that is what I more than anything else, hopeful. Thanks, Al-Karim? Yeah, I would echo those points, actually. And I think these interim targets and achieving those targets and to be on the pathway, because, you know, many people can state these 2050 targets, but actually keeping on that runway year on year is so critical because every year you lose makes your job of fulfilling the ambition that we need to achieve that much more difficult. On the point around the um, the funding that needs to be channeled from developed countries to emerging markets. I would absolutely agree that we need to achieve and, and, and sign up to that 100 billion per year. But I would say that's just not fast enough or is not significant enough. I think that number needs to be exponentially higher. And the reason I say that is, and we've touched upon this before, is that many of these less developed countries have not had the chance to develop their economies in the carbon-intense world, and they haven't had that luxury, what they're being asked to do right now is to move straight from their current situation, from an economic perspective, to a, an improved economic state in a clean way. And that's a really tall order for any country to achieve. And that's why I feel that developed countries need to take a much more understanding approach to this and channel far more money to the emerging markets than they're currently proposing to do. Great. Harry, your point of view? Yeah, I can't disagree with anything that Svera and Al-Kareem said. But for me, I would come back to the NDCs because it's not just about pathways to net zero. It's actually about carbon budgets. And uh, as Al-Kareem mentioned, DMV's ETO report shows that the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees will be exhausted by 2029. Yeah, and the two degrees C budget will be spent by 2053. So it's really important that the NDCs, these nationally determined contributions from all the countries, add up globally to 1.5 degree C carbon budget. Otherwise, we're set up to fail. Thank you very much, everyone, for your great insights on, on that matter. What I would like to do is now to really fast forward. Let's imagine COP26 has happened, agreements have been reached, whatever they are, 
What happens next? Al-Karim, what do you expect will happen as each nation goes back to their day job of setting policy at a national level? Yeah, thanks, Matthias. Um, one of the things to remember is that COP is not a, an end in itself. Um, and it's not the starting point nor the finish point for what we're trying to do on climate. And so the exercises that each country has is an ongoing exercise to try and achieve carbon neutrality within the time frame that we are hoping to achieve. But certainly, having agreed certain targets at the COP, each country will, of course, analyze those targets, uh, see what it's signed up for, um, and compare it to the previous targets that it had set. Uh, and they will want to revisit the direction of travel uh, that they're currently on and to determine whether they are prioritizing the right technologies, what are the innovations that need to be financially supported, what incentives need to be offered, where there need to be taxes in place or other mandates to enable action to happen, and importantly, how to facilitate private sector funding to support the massive deployment of clean energy that's required. And so they will need to do that in a just way as well. And one of the things that we need to bear in mind is that energy costs have a much more or has a much more significant contribution to the percentage of the uh, earnings of the poorer people within a country than, than the well-off. And so the cost of these investments, particularly in these early years, could be quite substantial, which may require energy prices to be higher thus really uh, affecting those poorer people. So I think making that transition uh, much more just and enabling policies to support those communities is really critical to make this happen. And I think the fastest, uh, the, the biggest challenge that we, we touched upon again is speed. They will need to make that transition and agree to those pathways which are much, much faster than they've ever looked at before. Harry, building on what Al-Karim just told us there, What do you want to see from individual governments, both in developed and developing countries? Matthias, I hope you will indulge me because I'd like to see two things and both actually relate to what Al-Karim said. And, and um, the first is an economic and commercial framework that enables the money to flow to the right projects. At the moment, many clean energy projects are high capex, capital expenditure, high risk and low return. We need a new balance between subsidy and tax across the energy system. And the second, we absolutely have to speed up electrification, but also we do need to decarbonize those hard to abate sectors, heavy industry, shipping, aviation. These sectors are hard to electrify. So we need alternative pathways to net zero, such as hydrogen combined with carbon capture and storage. Right. Svera, as you mentioned in the pathway to net zero report, time, not capital, is the key constraint on achieving the world's urgent target. What needs to have been achieved by COP27 in November 22 in order for us to be confident that we are on track? I think it depends uh, first on track towards what? I mean, on track towards the current pledges. That's sort of one level. On track towards the Paris ambitions of well below two, striving towards one and a half, that's another level. 
And then on track towards one and a half degree, as our new pathway report points to, that's the third level. And they are exponentially more difficult, the one and then the other. But what we really need to see if we are to be on track towards a one and a half degree future is to see a bend of the emission curve itself. I mean, it doesn't help with a month or a mountain of good intentions. You need to see the results in the emission reports. Because the, the, the global temperature is, is uh, very well correlated with the amount of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's only reduction in emissions itself that will lead us towards one and a half uh, degree. And, and with the current emissions of uh, around 40 gigatons of CO2 and 30 years until 2050, it comes by itself that you need to reduce more than one gigaton every year. And that has never happened except last year where you had an exception due to the pandemic and which this year again is reversed. So, so in order to be on track, we need to see the emissions, the global CO2 emissions on its way down. Then we are on track. So following the many discussions and hopefully decisions made at COP26 by the global leaders, Harry, how does this trickle down to consumer behavior? Or maybe I should rather ask, how can governments help consumers to get on board with ideas such as switch to a hydrogen boiler, buy an electric car? This will be massive investment by individuals uh, to do these things. Matthias, that's actually a really great question. And I'm just going to take a step back because it's important to realize the energy transition is not a single transition. It's multiple transitions. I actually refer to it as a three-in-one transition. Yes, it's about energy supply and demand, but there's also a jobs transition and a consumer transition. And we need to make the energy transition as easy as possible for consumers. So where that could be insulating homes, it's low carbon heat for houses, it could be heat pumps, air source or ground source, or as you describe a switch to hydrogen boilers, or also you refer to getting people out of the combustion engine and into an electric car. For all of these examples, we need costs to come down and we need energy efficiency to improve such that the green consumer transition is not just a lifestyle choice by the few, but a cost-effective option for all. And I think that's really important. Thanks for that, Harry. Talking about the role of governments and coming back to responsibilities, and this is the point you also touched on, Svera, what needs to change in the approach of governments to stay in power to do the right thing for their country? Yeah, the governments, they have a toolbox, and, and they need to apply that entire toolbox. And, and in order to make that happen, we, we need them to be brave and to take both the, 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 so the easy choices and the more difficult choices. When we talk about difficult or hard to abate sectors, it's also about expensive to abate sectors. It's easy to tackle the low hanging fruits, which is what has been done. No, you need to tackle the not so low hanging fruits anymore, which are both technology wise and capital wise more challenging. And, and you need brave politicians to, to take those decisions that does not come by itself, does not come because you, you can save a little bit of money, but that comes by tough actions and, and tough choices and that most of us are not ready to take ourselves, 
but that the, the government needs to take for us. I would like to thank you all for our discussion today. And I want to finish with a final question for every one of you. How do we make sure that the high-level ambition or even specific commitments outlined at COP turn into concrete legislation and firm action? Sverre, let's start with you and then perhaps Al-Karim and then Harry. Uh, we have said in our energy transition work that the technology is available, but the policy needs to step up. And one thing is brave politicians. Another one is the width of tools that the politicians needs to use. I mean, we talk about taxes and incentives. We talk about standards. We talk about mandates and bans, R&D support. And, and all this should be adapted to which sector and maturity these sectors have. Different countries are at different stages of, of maturity as well. So we need to use the entire toolbox with urgency. That is, uh, that is the number one commitment that we would like to see. Thank you. Al-Karim? Yeah, the UNFCCC will track each country's NDCs, and we've, we've touched upon this earlier, and provide updates on the progress that each of those countries is making. And right now, hardly any country is actually making the progress we need them to make. And so I think it's much more transparency, even some competition across countries to see what our con other countries are achieving, I think could be an interesting way to try and promote action uh, when, for example, countries see their neighbors doing better than, than they are. And I think because the climate agenda is getting so much stronger, one doesn't have to go very far on the news to now see this point and, and around climate coming up as the number one or number two topic on the news. So I think that consumer awareness of the importance of climate may facilitate a, a change here in how, how these countries track. But I would also say that uh, governments need to provide that fertile, clean energy landscape to ensure that change is not impeded. And so that balance between mandates and incentives needs to be there to facilitate change. And governments must be there to strictly track how those different end users of energy and generators and transporters of energy are acting within that landscape. Right. And Harry? Yeah. The goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And real change happens, Mateus, when everybody contributes. So yes, as Al Karim has said, governments need to lead the way, or as Farah said, bold, brave politicians need to lead the way with a clear pathway to reducing emissions. Then companies need to step up and deliver on that pathway. But also consumers need to ask themselves, how can I contribute? When there is a mindset change across all of these three groups, then we can accelerate the energy transition and stay within the 1.5 degree C carbon budget. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. It was fascinating to hear about what we can expect as world leaders come together at the COP26 conference to discuss the most pressing issues humanity faces. We'll take a break while the conference is underway, but we are straight back afterwards with expert analysis and insights. Join us as we bring together experts from across the industry to discuss what was achieved at COP26 and what this means for the world's roadmap to achieving net zero. 
To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnv.com slash talksenergy.